I want to say we love these masks, don't we? But then I just, I can't say it. So, um, but anyway, thanks uh, everybody. It's, it's a true honor, privilege, joy to be a pastor at this church. I absolutely love you guys. <laughs> and you guys, this has been a hard season. I hear so many um, almost horror stories from other pastors and all the conflict and the division. Um, and we just haven't had it, or at least those people have left. <laughs> but uh, that's okay. I mean, there's one church in Grand Rapids, okay? And some of us serve different niches within the body of Jesus. And in fact, one of the things that people labeled Crossroads early on that got a lot of traction is uh, they called us the locker room church. And I, I like that because I played sports and I know what the locker room is. The locker room is a very, very special place. Um, it, it's where you are with your teammates uh, before a game, in the middle of the game, after a game. It's, it's where you are with your teammates before practice after practice. Um, I have so many memories of just being in the, in the locker room, just blood, sweat, tears. Um, it's the place where you hurt with other teammates who hurt, uh, where you celebrate and rejoice uh, the, the things that the team and your teammates are doing. But it's not the playing field. But you wouldn't know what to be or what to do on the playing field if it wasn't for the locker room. And so that's why we value the locker room. But that motif, while we're not leaving it for this season, because people are asking, what's Crossroads going to do? What are we going to be for the next season? And your elders have literally had two meetings this week, spent countless hours just wrestling with this, praying, discussing. And this is what they concluded and we really believe that this is God's heart for our church. And we don't think in this that we don't have to compare ourselves with other churches and think we're better or worse. But this is what God has called our church to be, a hospital. And it, it, it's, it's really in light of, which, which means this, we, we just can't close the doors. We can't stop gathering, okay? It's... It's going to be business as usual in, 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 in so many ways. Um, and, and, and here's one of the elders sent just things that we need to be praying for in our community right now. And this is largely our motivation for why the doors can't be shut. Because this isn't even just future. This, these things are happening right now. Lost businesses, lost jobs, lost loved ones, faith doubted. People in isolation, people in chronic pain, the homeless in failing temperatures, students who struggle with distance learning, ill-equipped parents struggling to help their children learn, substance abuse, video game addiction, sibling sexual assault, increased drug uses, usage, criminal sexual misconduct, child abuse, decrease in disease immunity, suicide disabilities, exasperated due to the interrupted routines, spousal abuse increase, divorce increase, increased depression, anxiety, physical abuse increase. And the list goes on and on. So while we value our frontline workers, so value them, they're heroic in this time, nurses, doctors, practitioners in the hospitals, and we want them to stay safe. 
uh, we're also seeing that there are also all these other things happening for which the church of Jesus Christ exists for. In fact, one of the th things, too, that is, is going to happen, we've been talking to Degage about this, is when it gets colder, the homeless population increases. And because of social distancing and all that, um, they need to cut back on how many people they can have, all the while more homeless. And we're talking about ways in which we could assist them and possibly, possibly even use these four walls to, to house uh, the homeless in our, in our city. So I, I think you get the gist. Um, this is not about politics. This isn't about anything other than what we believe. The church that Jesus died for, that Jesus birthed and unleashed, is to be for the world, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay, and so let's live into that 24-7, 365, because we, you, are the church. And what an opportunity we have today to just be fully present in our hurting world uh, with Christ and for the glory of Christ. So, as you can tell, we haven't left, left the locker room. There's your locker room speech. Let's turn to our Bibles. John chapter 12. And I see my father-in-law here, who I call dad, and I'm just reminded of last week and just the gift of God's word uh, preached to you, through you, to us. Um, if you were here, just the story of Mary um, and her breaking open that alabaster jar of perfume and anointing Jesus' feet. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Just for sake of context, I'll start with verse 7 of John chapter 12. And this is Jesus talking, leave Mary alone. And he's responding to Judas, who is chiding Mary uh, for her act, her act of humble, personal, extravagant love. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large group of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of Jesus, but to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And I'd want to be one of those Jews. Check that out. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we're quickly approaching the last week of Jesus' life. And the raising of Lazarus is foreshadowing as to where this whole story is going. It's moving towards an empty tomb. And as we've seen, Jesus has captured the full attention of the Jewish people, and way beyond that. But he has especially captured the attention of the Jews who are in power, the elites, Jews withstanding. So in our text today, it's the chief priests. And this is where we have to ask, who are the chief priests? 
Well, the chief priests, the priests, and the Levites are the people who are tasked by God to run the temple. And because of this, they had enormous power because the temple uh, to a first century Jew is so central to their whole identity as a people. All their core convictions, their expression of worship, all the major holidays, in fact, their entire story runs through the temple and is centered on the temple. Because in their minds, that temple is more than a building. It's heaven. It's heaven on earth. It's the Garden of Eden. It's where God lives. And so the priests, and especially the high priests, who run the temple are seen to be like Adam and Eve. They're the ones who live in the garden, they're the gatekeepers of the garden, and they're the gardeners of the garden. And so they had enormous status, enormous power, and even according to the ancient sources and archaeology, they had enormous wealth. Not only did they live in mansions in Jerusalem, but they also had their vacation homes in Jericho. Um, they, they, they were wealthy. Now, here's the deal that we need to know about these high priests. They are in bed with Rome. Now, I don't know what that does to you, um, but it should shock us. It should shock us for the simple reason that everything that Rome was was antithetical to everything a Jew was. Their lifestyle, their worldview, uh, their violence and brutal dom domination over the people that they, they ruled, this literally filled a Jew's heart with hate. So really, these Jewish priests being in bed with Rome would be the equivalent of a Jew in the 1930s being in bed with Nazism and Hitler. This is why Jews in Jesus' day called zealots literally killed fellow Jews, these priests and high priests, because they were traitors in bed with Rome. They had no category for it. But here's the question. Why would the most religious people of Jesus' day be in bed with Rome? Well, John, this is where it, his gospel is such a gift because he's going to slow the narrative down and he's going to give us tons of detail over the last week of Jesus' life. This already begins in chapter 11. We looked at the first four scenes, the raising of Lazarus. Uh, there's a fifth scene there that I just want to highlight. This is the response. I love it. It comes right after Jesus says to them, take off his grave clothes and let Lazarus go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees, listen, they got together. That would literally be the equivalent of red and blue, right and left, coming together. Over what? Jesus. 
Then the chief priests and Sadducees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the, is the Jewish Supreme Court. This thing is getting official now. And here's what they said. What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You see what's going on in their minds? These elites, the chief priests and Pharisees, they're looking at this movement that Jesus has unleashed and they're scared. And you need to know what they're scared of. They're not scared that Jesus is some heretic leading Jewish people into some new false religion. They're afraid that this Jesus movement is getting so out of control that it's going to get Rome's attention and Rome's going to have to come in and subdue the whole thing and in doing that take away the temple and their nation. In other words, they're afraid of losing everything they have. Their good life, their life of power, comfort, status, their mansions, their vacation homes. And they're afraid. It's out of this that the high priest Caiaphas becomes the chief voice. Look at, listen to what he says to the Supreme Court, verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. <laughs> I love that. He looks at all these guys. You guys know nothing. And listen to what he says. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. You see what Caiaphas is doing? He's getting them to think offensively. Jesus must die. And his justification for this, he says one man, one man must die for the nation. Because what he's thinking, that if we can kill Jesus, we can spare ourselves. We can spare our nation. More importantly, it will allow for us to have the life that we have. So what this comes down to for this Jewish Supreme Court is either they lose their life as they know it or they get rid of Jesus. And we know what they choose to do because they can't let go. They can't give up their comfort, status, power, and wealth. They must have it. And they're willing to kill to keep it. What about us? What are we clinging to? What are we hanging on to? Are we clinging to our own life of comfort? Are we living in fear that we're losing our nation? That we're losing our religion or our religious freedom? And how does this cause us to respond? 
Does it cause us to trust God more and to see God for who he is, who knows the Alpha and the Omega, who is the King and the Lord and is in control of all things? Or does it, like Caiaphas, cause us to actually play God? Does it cause us to kill so we can keep what we have? Or does it cause us to lay down and to let go of lesser things? Things that could be idols in our lives so that we could seek first Christ and his kingdom. Now what Caiaphas just said here is, I mean, I love how he starts it off. He's like, you guys know nothing. Let me tell you. He doesn't even know what he's saying. But what he said is utterly profound. When he says that the one should die for the nation. The one for the many. I mean, just think about that whole concept because I think whenever we see it, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, um, I mean, this to me I think is one of the major storms of uh, one of the major themes of the best stories, the best movies, um, the best literature is this idea of one person giving up their life for another or for the many. I mean, I think about Mufasa in Lion King dying for Simba, or William Wallace in Braveheart dying for the Scots, or Maximus in Gladiator dying for Rome, or, or maybe the best of all is, is Frodo, who uh, has to bear this ring and bring it to Mordor, and you realize early in the journey, he realizes it's going to cost him his life to save the world. You just want to bet, didn't you? A bet if Rod's going to mention uh, Lord of the Rings. I got that. <laughs> but this theme, one dying for the many, is actually the major theme of the Bible. I mean, it is woven deep into the fabric of the biblical narrative. Hints of this theme already occur in Genesis. When the, when the whole world falls into ruin because of Adam and Eve's sin, God makes that incredible promise to Eve. He, he says to her, he says, from you, Eve, will come a seed, a son, an earthling, who's going to repair all, all of this. It's that one for all. Then Abraham, later in the story, God says, Abraham, through you and your family is going to come that one, the son, through whom it's all going to be made well and right. Um, then later in the Abraham story, when God asks Abraham to take that one, that potential promised son, and to offer him as a sacrifice. In fact, God says, go to the exact same spot that later in the story I'm going to build my house. And as Abraham and Isaac are walking that day, Isaac, not knowing fully what's going on, but knowing they're going to do a sacrifice, asks his dad, Dad, we have everything for the sacrifice except the lamb. Where's the lamb? And this is the first time in the, biblical, in the Bible where the word lamb is used which becomes such also a major theme within this theme. Because we know what happened that day. Isaac was spared. 
because God did provide a lamb. But the lamb that God provided only pointed to a future lamb, a future son, through whom the many would be spared. So then like a good mystery, you, you, you're, you're left wondering, is, is it a son? Is it a lamb? Like, what is it? And then all of these hints take on greater detail in Exodus when God's people uh, have become a nation and they're slaves in Egypt. And they're under the boot of a pharaoh who is unleashing this genocide upon them. And God finally has enough. He instructs Israel, Israel, I want every family to take one lamb. And it can't just be any lamb. But God gives careful instruction. I want it to be a one-year-old lamb that is perfect and pure in every way. And God says, I want you to take that into your family for four days. So let me show you what a one-year-old lamb looks like. This is my 10-year-old daughter at that time, who's now a freshman at Hope College, with pure delight when we're in Israel, holding this pretty pure one-year-old lamb. Now, why would God instruct each family to get one lamb pure and to bring it into their family for four days? Because each person was to spend time with that lamb so they could personally identify with that lamb because that lamb was going to be your life and your salvation. Because after those four days, God then says, okay, I want you to slaughter this lamb and prepare it and to eat it. And I want all the blood from this lamb to be painted on the door frames of your home. God even specifies the kind of paintbrush they're to use. It had to be with the hyssop branch. And God instructed that as you prepare this lamb and as you eat this lamb, not one bone is to be broken. Why these details? And then God's final word to them, he says, for this lamb will be the Lord's Passover. Now the word Passover in Hebrew is the word Pesach. Pesach simply means to cover or to protect. It's what a mother bird does with its chicks. With its wings, it hovers over it and it covers and protects them. So when God says, for this lamb will be the Lord's uh, Passover, God's saying, this is going to be your protection, your covering. From what? Well, Egypt has already seen the plagues. But that's child's play for what's coming. God says, prepare yourself for judgment day. He says, Moses, the full force of my judgment is coming down like the prophets talk about when the sun stops and the stars fall from the sky and the moon turns blood red. Not a family will be spared, including the Hebrews. I want us to know something right now. When God judges, which is different than when we judge, because we're good at judging too, especially in the world we live in now. But when God judges, whether his judgment is big or small, he doesn't see what we see. 
He doesn't see good people and bad people. He doesn't really see people who are on the blue side or the red side, right or left. He doesn't even really see what kind of family we come from or what kind of tribe we belong to, what church we go to. When God judges, he sees us. And the Bible says no one, no one is righteous. We're all doomed. We're all sinners. Deserving the full force of God's justice. So what saves Israel on this judgment day, it's not their goodness. It's not that they're morally and spiritually superior to the Egyptians. God says, when I see the blood, I will Pesach, I will protect and cover you. When that judgment comes down, it's almost like with, with, with one hand, God's plague of justice is being unleashed. But it's like at the same time, his other hand is protecting and covering his people for the simple reason that they are covered by the blood of a lamb. It is amen. Because this is the theme of the Bible. It's the one for the many. Now think about this. Every year after this first Passover, God instructs Israel to remember this event through a, through a holiday called Passover. Because God wants them every single year to remember. <laughs> so if you're, you're growing up in this world, uh, from as long as you can remember, maybe even when you're three or two, you have these memories of your family, every Passover, getting a lamb, for four days bringing that lamb in, the whole family spending time with that lamb, identifying with that lamb. Then you make your way to Jerusalem with that lamb. Every family showing up at God's house with their lamb. Maybe you go with your dad four days later. And you watch your dad slit the lamb's throat. You watch the priest collect all its blood, throw it on the altar. And then as a family, you eat it. Like we're going to be doing this Thursday at Thanksgiving. You have a wonderful meal and your grandpa re retells the whole story of the exodus. Your grandma the whole time is probably saying, make sure no one breaks one of the bones. And it's just pushed in you. This whole story of, of, of the one for the many. And not only do you have this annual reminder through Passover, but every single day, God instructs this. He says, I want a priest in my house every morning, 9 a.m., every afternoon at 3 p.m., rain or shine, war or peace, to take a lamb and to slaughter it for the whole nation. And this went on for a whole millennia. Every day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m. 
And also connected to this, as, as, as a priest was performing this sacrifice in the living room, another priest from God's rooftop would blow the shafar to tell everyone, a lamb right now is dying for the nation. Derek brought this when he found out my sermon this morning. And you found that out at what time today? Imagine hearing that sound that I'm going to have Derek play again. Every morning at 9 and every afternoon at 3 to remind you that a priest in the temple was offering a lamb for you and all your in the whole nation. You know what that shofar reminded them of? Of God's promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. That like Isaac and to Isaac's children and to Isaac's children's children, children to the thousandth generation, they were to be spared because one day a greater lamb, a greater son would be offered on that hill. Even the prophets get into this theme when they say, for unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given, and this son will be despised and rejected, a man of suffering and married to much pain, but he will be led like a lamb to its slaughter, and through his his wounds will be healed. And see, what John has been doing uh, for the last uh, several chapters of his gospel is he's, he's showing us Jesus through the major Jewish holidays, through Sabbath, through the Feast of Tabernacles, through Hanukkah, and now for the remainder of this gospel, John is going to show us Jesus through the greatest of all Jewish holidays, Passover, Pesach. And so starting in, in John chapter 12, it begins with six days before Passover, Jews from all over the world are coming as families with their lamb to show up at God's house to celebrate that great day of the Lord. Would this be the year that the world goes dark, that the moon turns red, that the stars fall from the sky, that God's judgment comes down on a new pharaoh on Rome and we're spared and set free? You know, according to John's gospel, the day Jesus arrives in Jerusalem is the same day everyone selects their lamb. Do you know that the day Jesus dies, we call it Good Friday, but John wants us to know that it was Passover. In fact, John wants to push us even further. He wants us to know that the night at the very time that those Passover lambs are being slaughtered in the temple, Jesus is hanging on a cross. John also wants us to know not a bone was broken. John also even includes the hyssop branch, that paintbrush that painted the blood over uh, while Jesus is being crucified. It was with a hyssop branch that they put the sponge when he said, I thirst. John also wants us to know that as Jesus hung on that cross, that the world went dark. 
The earth shook, the sun stopped. Why? It's judgment day. This is a day when, when, when God's judgment came down where his, his justice is unleashed in all its might against all the sin in the world. And instead of falling on Rome, instead of falling on the world, the full force of God's judgment falls on the one, the Son, the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his blood, it covers, it protects, it saves. John also wants us to know that the exact time that Jesus was placed on the cross, 9 a.m., as Jesus is placed on the cross, the shofar would have been blared throughout the city. John also wants to know the moment Jesus died, that, that second shofar blast of the day at 3 p.m. is the time when Jesus yelled out, it is finished, and he bowed his head and died. John wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, one Lamb for the nation. Now, why a Lamb? Well, Lamb is all over the pages of the biblical story. It's almost as if God created this wonderful creature to help tell the story that he wants to tell. Because when you think about what a lamb is, and you think about the kind of world that we live in, we live in a world that's come of age. We live in a world that knows good and evil. And a lamb just stands there as this picture of innocence, purity. While the blood, all the blood, I can't handle blood. <laughs> Just think about what blood does. Blood screams at us that something is seriously broken. Blood leaves stains. Blood reminds us of the true nature of sin. Sin leaves stains, deep stains. Blood also tells us that we're not fit. We're not fit for God. We're not fit for God's presence. We're not fit to be in relationship with him. God is holy. We are not. Like this is our biggest problem. We have been made for God. We've been made to know God. We've been made to walk with God, but we're not fit for God. And this is why the God of the universe, who created the galaxies, put all the stars in place, knows every star by name, created the earth, created every human being, knows us down to the detail of every hair that falls from our, our head. This God, this God, became a lamb. A lamb. Peter says it so well in 1 Peter 1. He says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, you are redeemed, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed to us in these last days. And here's Caiaphas saying to all his colleagues, you guys know nothing at all. 
And I just want to look at you, at Caiaphas, and say, Caiaphas, you know nothing at all. You don't even know what you're saying. You don't even know what you're about to do because you don't know your master's plan. Because going all the way back to the beginning, one dying for the nation, for the world, is the master's plan. But not so that you, Caiaphas, and and all your priestly buddies can preserve what you have, but so that the God of the universe can spare and forgive and redeem and restore and repair and resurrect a world he loves so much. For God so loves the world that he gave his one. One thing John loves to do, he's he's a master at it. As he's telling the story of Jesus, he loves to take characters and lay them side by side, two contrasting characters. So he lays Nicodemus, this ultimate insider who's at the top religiously and culturally, economically, socially. He lays Nicodemus right next to a Samaritan woman who's actually at the bottom in all these categories. And he's doing the same thing here. Here's Caiaphas. He's at the very top, economically, socially, religiously. And who does he lay Caiaphas next to? Mary. And we're forced to look at Caiaphas who, out of fear, is trying to hang on to everything that he has, his power, his status, his wealth. He's willing to kill Jesus to keep it all. Yeah, here's Mary with her alabaster jar. In fact, I remember in college when Jill Briscoe Briscoe came and spoke at her school. She said that these uh, alabaster jars were, were given by dads to their daughters. It would have been a daughter's greatest gift. It would have been given to a daughter right before she got married as a form of her inheritance. For a daughter that wouldn't get married, and of course the dad would wait, the daughter would wait, but if it got to that point where it was just like she's not getting married, the dad would then give her. And Mary's single. Stop and think about what she just took. What she just broke open and poured at Jesus' feet. It's her security. It's her worth. It represents that one important man in her life, her dad, and all the love that he has for her. It's everything to Mary. Unlike Caiaphas, she gives it all, all of it. Who are you? Caiaphas or Mary? And I love this about about Mary because she does it for the simple fact that she knows what Caiaphas doesn't know. The text says that she anoints Jesus, first his head, then his feet. Kings in the Bible were anointed. Messiah means the anointed one. Through this act of anointing, she is saying, Jesus, you are king. She's declaring to that whole room, Jesus, you're my king. And we also, I think, 
have good indication that she knows what this king is here to do, and that is to die for her. This is why Jesus says, stop chiding her. She's doing this for my burial. Now, how does she know that Jesus, her Messiah King, is about to die? Because every time you read about Mary in the Bible, she is at Jesus' feet. She loves him, adores him, listens to him. Are you Caiaphas? Living in fear, trying to hang on to everything you have? Your health, your wealth, your comfort, your good life, even using God to maybe justify yourself? Are you playing politics, trying to prove that you're one of the good guys on the good team? Are you using your religion to justify yourself? Are you Mary? Giving it all up and placing at the master's feet because you know him as your king. And you know him as your lamb. And you know why the king had to become a lamb, a slaughtered lamb. You know, love like Mary's, as Joe said last week, so extravagant, so humble, so personal. She can only love like this because her heart is first melted. And that's the word, melted, by the extravagant, humble, personal love of Jesus. And now we're right back to Abraham. Abraham walking up that hill and being willing to give up what he loves most. This is biblical faith. It's Paul. When Paul's going to go back to Jerusalem, his friends say, Paul, you go back to Jerusalem, you're going to die. And Paul says, I count my life of no value except to proclaim Jesus Christ as my Lord. It's Jesus. I mean, just look at him. I mean, John is right. Look, behold. It's all we need to do. We, all, we, we, we just need to see him. It's what Philip says to Nathaniel. It's what the Samaritan woman says to the village. Come and see him. Don't stop looking until you see him. Because to really see him is to truly know him. And to truly know him is to truly love him. And to truly love him is to truly fall at his feet and to worship him. Let's pray. God, in the crazy times we live, thank you for these two characters. And God, I pray that my Caiaphas heart, because I needed, I needed this word today. I needed this word all week as I studied it, God. My heart can so be like Caiaphas. God, would you make our hearts like Mary? God, we pray that you would do that work as you open the eyes of our heart to see you, Jesus all that you are, all that you did, how the king of the world became the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, my sin 
In Jesus' name, amen.